Welcome to The Unsettled Garden, a podcast about the politics of gardening in Canada. I'm Alison Ralph, a writer and gardener living on the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, we're back with Dr. Wendy McCoon's genius, an Indigenous woman of Cree and Métis descent. She is a professor in the Department of Sociology at York University, author of Our Knowledge is Not Primitive, Decolonizing Botanical Anishinaabe Teachings, and editor of Plants Have So Much to Give Us, All We Have to Do is Ask. You've been navigating both Indigenous ways of knowing and the Euro-Western approach in your academic work as well. You've been living in that for a long time. What have you learned about balancing those things and how to do that well? Yeah, well, I've done quite a bit of work with the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. They have a wonderful website. It's Glyphwick, it's the first letters of their name, .org. And they have, you know, botanists and other non-Indigenous um, people doing non-Indigenous science, because some of them actually are Indigenous people. But uh, there, and they're in Odena, Wisconsin. It's right on, um, I guess it's called the South Shore of Lake Superior, but it's it's by Ashland, Wisconsin. And they have been working since the 1990s with tribes in the ceded territories in, in part, little part of Upper Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, some of Minnesota. And they've been doing a lot of work with plants, botanical beings and elders and collecting information from people. And so I think they have, in many ways, a nice model on how to work, uh, you know, with non-Indigenous science and Indigenous peoples. I know no one's perfect. I'm sure there's criticisms of everybody's program. But one really cool thing is when I've talked to botanists up there, you know, I'd be like, well, you know, there's this, they often have read my mom's book or something, you know, and it's like, well, there's this one plant that, you know, mm -hmm. we're working with and they can tell me more current stuff about it, which has been interesting or stuff that they've noticed or that they've heard from other, other places, possibly other places around the globe, you know, about a, about a certain botanical being. And that's been really interesting as we're revitalizing this knowledge, you know, in our communities that, oh, well, you know, in, in this place, they, they do this or watch out for this or, you know, when you're working hmm. with something, even I think this is a little more common known because a lot of people have been doing uh, wild racing continuously. And then there's some communities that are really heavy bringing it back. But even with the you know, wild rice shaft, you know, when you're winnowing um, or even when you're harvesting, um, they're, you know, they're like little prongs that can get in your skin, in your eye, you know. And so sometimes there's different um, techniques that different communities are using to just stop you from getting hurt. And there's different aspects okay. of it that, you know, non-Indigenous science can tell us about, um, you know, some of these things. And, you know, other plants have certain poisonous aspects. Um, my mom was always fascinated by cattails and their ability to suck everything up around them, including, you know, heavy metals and, you know, uh, activity from like nuclear test sites and things like that. And, but that's something that wouldn't be in our, our mm -hmm. culture, you know, a long time ago because nobody had those those really heavily polluted areas right now we do. So she was very fascinated with, with mm -hmm. examples like that. And it's something to certainly bring back into culture revitalization programs especially because if you're near something that's got heavy metals and you're going to work with the cattails you really shouldn't work with them right there you should get them from someplace else because uh, you, you could you could harm your just touching some stuff could harm your skin and i've heard of research 
out of California, especially in a book called Tending the Wild by M. Cat Anderson. And in there, uh, that author talks about basket weavers gathering materials where they always gathered them and having to go to the ER because they're, you know, they're getting rashes and skin problems because this stuff is, I, I don't know if it's radioactive, but it has something in it, you know, that wasn't there before. It sucks something up from the soil. So there's really important, I think when we're looking at the, the environment and how damaged it is right now, I think there's some really important messes that yeah. we do need to work on together. I think that's a, a huge, a huge problem. And I think it's something that if there's allies out there or indigenous peoples who are becoming or already are, you know, working with non-indigenous botany, this is, this is something we certainly need is, you know, what shouldn't we be touching where, right? And what, what do we have to watch hmm, out for that yeah. can be really valuable to our, our, especially our elders and children who are, you know, not the only targets of culture and language revitalization, but they're a big part of it, right? So those are very vulnerable populations yeah. when you're talking about something like, you know, some very harmful chemical. I guess what I was thinking about while you were talking was just the idea of how I guess we can perceive, you know, indigenous tradition ways of knowing things as kind of static, but it's really, you know, as with everything, it's constantly evolving. And so, you know, that that observation of like, you know, before nuclear uh, power plants were a thing, this wasn't something that we observed in the cattails, but now now we do. And uh, how have you noticed that in, in communities, that sort of shifting of e evolution of, of the knowledge? I think the most widely known example are the, the whole movement of the water protectors, you know, that mm. that isn't water's always important, always has been important um, in, in some indigenous cultures, yeah. including Anishinaabe cultures, women are very connected to water. But the idea that we needed to protect it and we needed people doing that like that wasn't a thing because nobody was screwing up the water you know but, but it's not funny but I mean mm, come on yeah. you know but now now they are so now yeah. we, we need this like we really really need this and all life does so there's there's things there's things like that that are certainly out there um deforestation I mean that's been a problem for over 100 years now right in the U.S. and Canada yeah but again wasn't an issue you know, a few hundred years ago. It really wasn't an issue. Now, now <laughs> it is, right? So, so now we need to work together to bring yeah. this back. And then there are so there's so many places where indigenous peoples no longer have access to their ancestral lands, no longer have control over tending and managing those spaces and environments. But now there are especially um, you know non-indigenous governments that are coming in and saying, okay, we want to restore X, Y, and Z, right? And in some time, places, mm -hmm. this is a chance that they are willing to work with the, you know, with the First Nations or the community members or whatever to do that. And those are really great spheres that can help us revitalize the earth, right? And even if it's in these small, these small yeah. spaces. And again, that's something where we, we need to work together. Like, you know, if there's some other animal yeah. population that's connected to this and the indigenous peoples know that and maybe that isn't as well known or isn't cared about or thought about in non-indigenous science like we need to have these conversations and make sure that this is all coming back together uh, so that those ecosystems can exist and you know life can thrive but we're 
in the end, we need to save human life too. And that's the only thing that's going to save us is if we start, we start bringing back other forms of life and start letting them uh, thrive and flourish. You've sort of hinted at this, but just that, you know, that some of these issues weren't issues until the last hundred years or so. And so like, before colonization, indigenous communities across Turtle Island were stewards of the land and had a different kind of relationship with that stewardship process. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there's been research on that in different spaces around the globe. And in some cases, there's been interviews with indigenous peoples uh, in spaces where catastrophic things have happened. Um, Some of the most recent stuff I've looked at has been out of Australia. I mean, in 2020, right, so much of Australia burned. And I really, Mm. really was, I mean, everyone was bothered by it. But one thing that was kind of also upsetting and my view was that the publication out of Hayward, Wisconsin, news from Indian country was no longer being printed. And the reason I was that sad about that at the time was, oh, there's this catastrophic thing happening in this you know, other place. But when they were around, they were around for a couple of decades, they, when any, some, ever something would happen like that, they would go and start interviewing indigenous people in the area. So I was, I was saying, where, where are these interviews? And they must be saying something. So I think it was the New York Times probably had an article or two on it. So I was looking at those. And so there were indigenous people from, you know, the, it was the South that was burning, right? They were coming from the North and they were saying, last time I was down there, I wanted to get out as soon as I could because I felt there was a tinderbox, that they were not uh, doing uh, small controlled burns and they should have been, and that's something we always do. And there were things like that, like, why aren't they managing this? And those were real haunting statements because I'm sure that, you know, for the last couple of centuries, that Indigenous, or maybe the last 500 years, depending on where you are, um, indigenous peoples have been watching, you know, their these places that they managed just, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. just get so incredibly screwed up, you know, <laughs> and yeah. watching that, it's just, I, I'm sh- I know it continues to be very heartbreaking and sad, but I, I can just picture those original caretakers, you know, seeing what was happening to their gardens, essentially, because, and I know you're, we're, we're on a podcast talking about gardening, but our our gardening, you know, isn't just the little plot you might have next to where you live, you know, or just the center, yeah. part of a community center or something like that. You know, we are, some of our gardens are out in the, what in English is called wilderness. You know, in, in Ojibwe, we have a section, mm. you know, we say bawudge, like I'm in this woods that you don't, um, humans aren't supposed to go to. That's like the bush, right? And I think I first got those teachings from Ojibwe Motadada Omagadakimanong, like let's speak Ojibwe here in our, on our earth, the Ojibwe Immersion Academy. But so there's this area like that, but we also have Meguayak, you know, the, that's another kind of woods that we do go in. And that, that kind of woods um, is something that we're, you know, we're tending and managing and we're, you know, making sure that there isn't the undergrowth and the limbs around things and, you know, that we, we can grow trees a certain way so that they're straight so that we can peel um, birch bark off of them and so they don't have a lot of knots so the wood can be split to make the interior of a canoe, for example. And so that those those sorts of things are mm-hmm. happening all over the Americas, I would argue, are happening wherever Indigenous peoples had 
control to manage their environments, you know. So that's an important thing to think of when you're thinking of gardening. Yeah, you know, Ojibwe people have them, had them. Yeah, there's a revitalization of that. Yes, we don't have a lot of access to soil sometimes or land to do this on. So that's hard. Hmm. Um, But we also have in the past, and they're starting to get more of this, you know, access to things that English calls the woods, the wilderness, the, you know, the unsettled, unclaimed, untended area. That's not what it is to us. You know, it's, it's an area that hmm. there's some of that, but the stuff immediately where we live, you know, that's where we're getting resources and where we're, you know, helping other life to thrive, but also making sure that it does so in a way that we can work with these beings for, you know, things that we, foods, medicines, and things that we need to make. I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned um, towards the beginning. You mentioned that the importance of naming our research from your book, Our Knowledge is Not Primitive. Can you can you talk about that? Well, in that text, I was looking at some uh, research that they were doing with elders at Seven Generations Educational Institute that's um, on Crown land out of uh, Fort Francis, Ontario. And they, at the time, because my mother was in this program, were looking at what was happening with the Maori in New Zealand and how they were saying that claiming research, part of it is naming it. So they had this panel of Ojibwe speakers in Fort, you know, in, in seven generations, and they were, uh, you know, saying, well, this this is what we call this, you know, so like culture, for example, is Ijetuawin, right? And that just means that, it's a, you know, it's a way of life, you know, what you do. And and they were also putting on Anishinaabe. So Anishinaabe is a Tawa. Now that, you know, they were translating as, you know, Ojibwe culture. Anishinaabe can be also translated as indigenous. It depends, you know, what your context is. So, so you know, they were, they were not just naming, taking an English name for culture. They were saying this is our specific one when they were putting the Anishinaabe um, hmm. and, and connecting it to mm-hmm. Ishitwawin. And they were doing that with knowledge as well, you know, Anishinaabe, Gekane Dawson. And there's, on one level, it's could you substitute those words when you're writing, especially if you're writing about, you know, something that is specifically indigenous or specifically Ojibwe. But the the other part is saying that this is this is our way of doing it. This is our way of researching it. And this is our we have our own purposes for this. So there's a lot a lot encompassed in that. It's not simply transferring one word for another, because our you know yeah. our concept of what knowledge is and what teachings are and how knowledge is, you know, when we started this discussion, you know, how knowledge is preserved, passed on, maintained. Those are so different from the, you know, the non-Indigenous world. And they're so different from the English-speaking world in many, many ways that they're, it really, it's, it's a different thing. And the word used to describe it should be different too, to, to really stress that. Then, you know, once you, especially as a language learner, you know, once I understood what these things were called in the language, I was better able to go and speak in the language to elders and to say, I, I want to know about this, but say it in the language. And th- then I was getting so much more information and so many more connections were being, I guess I was making, but people were making them for me too, because they were <laughs> explaining mm-hmm. Um these things. Um, one recent one was that, you know, when they were naming different things, they were saying to these elders, how do you say interconnectedness? And they said, in a way, And 
I, you know, I kept that in my, I wrote that in the book. I mentioned what it was, but I didn't use it yet. You know, it was like years ago. I didn't speak enough to really go to someone and talk mm. to them. And then, you know, more recently, it was during the pandemic, I, I asked um, Majid Gunayash, who's Gordon Jourdain. He works at Fond du Lac in Minnesota right now, but he's from, he's from Ontario. But anyway, I asked him, I know I said, Anin Asian is Dotaman. You know, and then he gave me this whole beautiful description of this interconnectedness of life and the language and just making connections that in English you hmm. couldn't, I mean, you could say them. I don't know if he necessarily would have said them exactly yeah. like that in English, but the it's just been beautiful. I mean, even talking about spirits and strengths and importance and everyone having importance and just Things like that, that when you say interconnectedness of life in English, it's beautiful and I can talk to you about it. But that piece was really missing from my discussion. So there's a whole, whole lot of that. And if you're an Indigenous person and you're interested in revitalizing your culture, you, you really need the language. If there's any way you can be speaking the language, you need to. And part of that, if you really want to go and do research with your elders and you want to know about things, really find out what they're called in the language and ask like not just what is this object I'm looking at but like how do we use this how do we understand this but say it in the language and really you get you get encyclopedias versus sentences as a response hmm. and I guess in alongside that I'm wondering for non-indigenous people who are are wanting to kind of learn you know more uh, decolonized ways of inter interacting with nature and with their gardens. Is there anything um, different about, you know, a non-Indigenous person engaging with understanding the names and, and sort of that language part of it that you were talking about, the value of the language, of understanding the language and the, the things that that opens up? Is there something in that uh, that's, that's uh, as a non-Indigenous person, that you need to be conscious of or um, open to? Well, there's many, many ways that allies can work with us. Um, I think a beautiful thing to do is, especially if, well, even your own garden too, you know, but if you have uh, access yeah. to some sort of public space where they're growing stuff, you know, encourage in your garden and, you know, these public spaces, actual native and indigenous plants, right? So stuff that's from from mm. where you're living, you know, grow that. And don't use the garden store variety. Don't use the invasive species variety. Use something native because you're you're helping all life and you're helping our little bugs, you know, too. And you're helping the birds and you're going to have a beautiful yard. You can have all these cool little animals that are going to appear that weren't there before. That's going to be fun for you. But <laughs> you're also helping the rest of us. Um, perhaps you are going to have seeds that you can share with communities, um, with individuals. Perhaps people will come to you and ask you, can I have a clipping of this? I really want to grow this myself, you know, so, and that's one beautiful thing to do. Another one is to label, you know, can you label in the language of the place you are living? You know, can you ask what things are called? Um, hmm. If it's a public space, especially, you know, why I, I understand. I mean, I'm, I lived in the U.S. my entire life until July, you know, so I understand there's two official languages <laughs> in Canada and everything's got to be in French and English. That's really fun to read stuff on the milk cartons <laughs> and stuff. But I mean, seriously, so if you're if you're using plants and trees, you, you know, could could you have an indigenous name from where you are? You know, shouldn't that be just as important to where you mm. are as well? So and I yeah. mean, I, I've taught 
at university campuses have been the Ojibwe language program has been, you know, me and my students and any elders willing to work with us, you know, and those, the mm. arboretums in these places, you know, they were in, had English common names. They had these non-Indigenous scientific names. I was there for years. Why didn't we get some Ojibwe names up, you know? Um, they, one, one botany yeah. <laughs> teacher wanted to start doing that the year I left, you know, in Wisconsin, but yeah, so oh. <laughs> that, yeah, but then didn't pick things that we were actually, elders were actually working with. So we didn't have, we don't have names for every single thing, you know? So anyway, yeah, you can really, mm. the naming project is beautiful. It, if you, you want to be accurate, you want to make sure you double check cross-reference your sources and everything, but that can be a beautiful thing. But just the seeds and propagation and sharing seeds and having native plant sales and trading trading plants and inviting people to come and learn about plants and propagating yeah. that can be really really amazing and that i think if you're a gardening ally or an indigenous person just practicing gardening whatever you know i think that that could get you a lot of mm. a, a lot of friends and could really be a wonderful thing for us to work together on well, that's really good. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, yeah, there is actually. Um, I thought that your people listening to the podcast, I understand that some people are maybe newer to gardening and some people maybe are just newer to plants. I don't I yeah. don't know. But if you're, maybe you're older at it, you already know this, or maybe you didn't know it. Okay, so catnip, all right? We call this plant Gitche Nemewashk. Gitche Nemewashk. And Gitche is like a great or big or large. We have Gitche Manadu, the great spirit, God, creator. It's Gitche Manadu. Mm-hmm. So Gitche, is, not everything is a spirit. It's called Gitche, but that's the idea that there's this larger being. And Nime is, Nime yeah. is, is a sturgeon. It's a fish, right? <laughs> oh. A really awesome fish yeah. that's in Lake Ontario, right? And if you go to, um, yeah, the aquarium yeah. here, you can you can certainly um, see them. And the Great Lakes Aquarium in Duluth has a touch pool. We can pet them. And so really, really fun. Yeah, they're, they're like little <laughs> kitties. They have like, you know, whiskers. They're the most awesome, awesome fish. And if you have any kind of program in your area for revitalizing this fish, you want to, because this is just the coolest little guy. But, you know, this this little fish gets really big. You know, this can be the the old uh, reports of them, unfortunately, when they were trying to eradicate Nime, right, from the Great Lakes. Like the, These are like the size of grizzly bears. Like these are hundreds of pounds, you know. It's a really cool fish. And then that wash oh, wow. is, is, is a plant. It's one of our, our final endings for plants. So to us, catnip is connected to this really 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 sacred important being who guards the great lakes right but you we want to know that that's fun looking at the connections between indigenous names and the the plants and other beings is really awesome however if you're new to gardening or you you want to grow some gitche namewashk or namewashkuns the mint plants right they're they're the little stir the little sturgeon yeah. plants so they're really cool too all you could do is go find one somewhere and take a, well, you want to make an offering and explain to this little being, you know, say, hi, I'm, I'm this person, this is my name and I'm, I'm from this place. Would you come home and grow with me? You know, you want to talk to this little being. And then you take a scissors, scissors and you cut uh, just a sprig of it. You know, you just want to cut off a, a piece of it mm. and you take it home and you take off the leaves. You want to leave a few at the top. If you want to, you want to have a sprig where you have some leaves, you take off as many as you can on the bottom, leave some on the top, and you stick this in water. Like you could use a coffee cup. Right now I've got one growing in a plastic cup I got at the, you know, cafeteria, right? <laughs> and you fill okay. it up with water. This is really fun. You can do it just. You fill this up with water and you make sure the water is covering all the time um, where you took those leaves off. Eventually, you put it in a window. 
Eventually, and this can sometimes it takes a month, sometimes it takes two weeks, kind of depends the heat, the conditions, you're going, going, roots are gonna grow out. Yeah. Roots are gonna grow out where you clipped it on the bottom yeah. and they're gonna grow out where you put these cut these leaves off, right? So you're gonna have this little cool thing. Now you can say I love hydroponics, you can just leave it in the water, right? Like right now I've got one in my windowsill. <laughs> I've got no dirt. I have no car here. I can't go to the garden center and get some dirt. It's kind of depressing. Anyway, point is, I'm going to have one growing with roots, right? <laughs> or you can get some soil and you can plant it in a little pot. You can leave it on your windowsill. And you have this really, really cool little, you know, dude living on your on your window. If you want, in the spring, you can go put this outside. And, the, you know, in the fall, it will go to sleep and come back the next year. So you've got this really awesome opportunity to have kitchen and maywash got the catnip or the maywash coons the mint or you could have a pot of all of them they make great teas they taste really great and um my mother and kiwade no quite mm-hmm. really stressed that kitchen and maywash the catnip can lower a fever without raising it and we're in the time of a pandemic right we are in a time when the world is out of yeah. balance humans have caused this pandemic you can point fingers to whoever you want but mm. we're we are the cause of it and how we have not interacted properly with the planet and other forms of life and even each other is made is perpetuating the pandemic mm-hmm. so anyway um and the fever yeah. is a big part of that pandemic even if you get your vaccination you could get one you know as an after effect of that or some people are still getting you know they still get sick you could still catch it and you could still get a you know a low fever so that this this lowers the the fever as well having this on your windowsill having this in your garden can really save you and your family from um especially children who you know if something that raises a fever and a kid can kill them you know uh but also it can make, make you feel better it's yeah. a, it's a nice way to interact with the the outside world and it's a nice way to have a native plant you know go go get one now i know that there are some botanists who said this is you know this is a <laughs> non-native plant brought by europeans i don't I've never believed that because we have ceremonies of this plants involved with hmm. and even if it's true we're talking hmm. about a few hundred years at this point so this this plant is well ingrained in our culture yeah. and you know if something's going to save your kid I mean you don't care where it's from right so yeah, yeah so go 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 no. grow some yeah go <laughs> grow some catnip I I understand that it does grow in other countries as well and if you're you know from european descent or something well your ancestors probably used this too so you want to you want to grow into it it's just neat to think that you could clip something from you know any any place a park a garden a campus they're on yeah. the campus here i clipped some here you know go go get some clip and you can grow it on your window that's just neat so <laughs> check it out yeah i love that so i i guess we'll we'll leave it here um one one more thing i want to ask is how can people learn more about your work or how would you like people to engage with with you well my mom's book is plants have so much to give us all you have to do is ask Right now, it's available at many libraries. You don't have to pay for it. It's uh, there's even an ebook version at many libraries. It's well represented in Toronto, and in the United States and all over Canada. And she, I, people that are really into gardening and plants and just learning about the natural world, as they say in English, you know, they, and 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 the color mm-hmm. our, our culture. People really love this book. So I would say go get a copy and check it out if you're really into. Yeah, if you're interested in the, you know, the, these teachings about catnip, some of them are in there too. You know, um, my book is our knowledge mm-hmm. is not primitive. It's a, it's not. I don't write anything that's truly hardcore academic. Nobody can read. I think it's a really. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a fun text as well. I have a little bit about cedar and birch in there and a few other plants. But if you're looking at specific plants in the 
garden. You're probably looking at my mom's book at that point. If you're interested in these concepts of tending the wild, uh, it's, the book is called Tending the Wild by mm. MCAT Anderson. It's it's uh, over a decade old now, but it's looking at California and you know pre-contact times into contact. So really beautiful text on that. I'm looking at how we're working at the national natural environment. If you're interested in, in, in the mm. May, you know, there is the Wolf River uh, Sturgeon Cam. <laughs> you can just go Wolf River Cam and their their slogan is really? once you've looked, you're hooked, I think it's called. Yeah, so that they in the spring when the sturgeon <laughs> spawn, they have this camera in the Wolf River in Wisconsin. It's uh, near Shawano, Wisconsin. Um kind of by Green Bay, but uh, by the Menominee Reservation. But they uh, they have this camera in by the dam there, and the, the, the fish just go by. And it's so neat because you see Namay quite a bit, um, but you also see Namay bin, the sucker fish, and you see Monomig, um, the catfish. There's just a whole bunch of these fish. And just fun to watch them go by. And then I really enjoy the Great Lakes Aquarium in Duluth because I think their sturgeon touch pool is so nice because the sturgeon have the choice to come to you or not. And they, <laughs> they put their little heads up. They want you to pet them. And it's just just for, for native fish to the Great Lakes region. I, <laughs> I don't think that funny. Duluth can be beat. I like the Ripley's Aquarium too, but I think this one's really fun. So if you're going to go take a trip on the Great Lakes, check it out over there. And uh, yeah, and then and the Great okay. Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission has a website with uh, lots of free educational sources if you're a teacher and you're looking for you know, information for your classes on Indigenous cultures. That was one of the reasons that that organization was created, along with being a part of the Department of Natural mm-hmm. Resources in Wisconsin. But um, they have a whole tab on there for educational stuff, and uh, they will send you stuff for free, too, and there's a lot of downloads. So check, check them out as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful time chatting with you and um, just learning, learning more about your work and giving some context to my questions. <laughs> yes, well, it'll be great for having me. It's been, uh, it's been fun to talk to you and I hope that your listeners will go and grow some catnip. <laughs> I, I certainly will. <laughs> I, I don't actually have any yet in my garden, so I will I will definitely be going and, and grabbing some of that. Now's the time because it, you <laughs> to know, my that, window this plant is still out there. Um, I've been finding them still out there, but they're going to go away soon because it's, I mean, once it starts to snow, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. Gonna get cold. We're not there yet in Ontario. So you, well, this part of Ontario, so you can still get some. Yeah. That's it for the Unsettled Garden this week. I'm Allison Ralph. This show is produced by Lead Podcasting. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking for me, I'll be in the garden. 